ਹਟਿਆ ਆਖਰ ਮਹਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਹੁਣ ਗੁਜਰਾਂ ਵਾਲੇ ਦਲ ਦੀ ਆਣ ਕਮਾਨ ਫਿਰ ਮਹਾ ਬਲੀ ਸੰਭਾਲੇ ਸੀਤਾ 11 ਸਾਲ ਦਾ ਪਰ ਜਿਗਰਾ ਵੱਡਾ ਘੇਰਾ ਪਾ ਕੇ ਬਹਿ ਗਿਆ ਕੀਤਾ ਉਸ ਸਿੱਡਾ ਕੁਮਕ ਪੁਚਾਈ ਭੰਗੀਆਂ ਰਣਜੀਤ ਨੇ ਸੁਣਿਆ ਜੋਧ ਸਿੰਘ ਤੇ ਕਰਮ ਸਿੰਘ ਨੇੜੇ ਪੁੱਜੇ ਆ ਅੱਗੋਂ ਵਧਿਆ ਲਲਕ ਕੇ ਮਹਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਦਾ ਜਾਇਆ ਰੋਕ ਕੋਟ ਮਹਾਰਾਜ ਪਾਸ ਹੱਲਾ ਕਰਵਾਇਆ ਜਮਦੇ ਉਸ ਜਰਨੈਲ ਨੇ ਹੈ ਠੱਲਾ ਪਾਇਆ ਵਾਹੀ ਤੇਗ ਉਹ ਜ਼ੋਰ ਦੀ ਜਿਸ ਮੂੰਹ ਭੁਆਇਆ ਕਈ ਤੋਪਾਂ ਜੰਬੂਰ ਕੇ ਉਸ ਦੇ ਹੱਥ ਆਏ ਗੁਜਰਾਂ ਵਾਲੇ ਪਿਤਾ ਪਾਸ ਸਭ ਕੁਝ ਭਿਜਵਾਏ ਜਿਉਂਦਾ ਹੈ ਸੀ ਮਹਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਸੁਣ ਕੇ ਖੁਸ਼ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਦਿਲ ਨੂੰ ਵੱਡ ਖਲੀਰ ਪਈ ਸਾਹ ਸੋਖੇ ਲੈਂਦਾ ਤੁਰਿਆ ਉਹ ਗੁਰਪੁਰੀ ਵੱਲ ਲਾਹ ਤੁੜਕੂ ਸਾਰਾ ਵਿੱਚ ਜਵਾਨੀ ਹੋਇਆ ਸਤਿਗੁਰੂ ਨੂੰ ਪਿਆਰਾ ਪਿਤਾ ਸਿਧਾਰੇ ਗੁਰਪੁਰੀ ਰਣਜੀਤ ਨੇ ਸੁਣਿਆ ਸਿਰ ਤੇ ਭਾਰੇ ਪੈ ਗਏ ਗਲ ਤਾਈ ਪੁਣਿਆ ਗੁਜਰਾਂ ਵਾਲੇ ਪਹੁੰਚਿਆ ਗਮ ਫਿਕਰੀ ਡੁੱਬਾ ਘਬਰਾਇਆ ਪਰ ਨਾ ਰਤੀ ਵੀਰਤਵ ਸੁੱਧਾ ਘਰ ਵਿੱਚ ਹੋਇਆ ਸੋਗ ਬਹੁ ਮਹਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਦੇ ਮਰਨੇ ਜ਼ਿੰਮੇਦਾਰੀ ਆ ਗਈ ਰਣਜੀਤ ਦੇ ਪਰਨੇ ਝੁੱਲੀ ਹਨੇਰੀ ਸਿਰ ਉੱਤੇ ਪਰ ਪੈਰ ਸੰਭਾਲੇ ਕਰਕੇ ਵੱਡਾ ਹੌਸਲਾ ਵੱਡ ਵੀਰ ਵਖਾਲੇ ਚਾਰ ਚੁਫੇਰੇ ਉਸ ਦੇ ਕਈ ਬੈਠੇ ਵੈਰੀ ਸ਼ੁਕਰ ਚੱਕੀਆਂ ਵੱਲ ਹੈ ਅੱਖ ਸਭ ਦੀ ਕੈਰੀ back to gujranwala mahasingh had to return leaderless the forces it was the hero's turn all of 11 was the lad but he was brave and bold ring the enemy forces ready the line to hold coming are more pangis this the lad was told jodh singh and karm singh with warriors untold boldly then he did advance mahasingh's brave son coat maharaj his camp the battle was begun freshly minted general the enemy he did ring adversaries all around mightily his sword did swing jamburaks and cannon by the lad were seized sent to gujranwala his father was much pleased mahasingh was still alive at ease was now his mind bursting with pride was his heart the path his son would find the time for him to leave was nigh his worries left behind taken in the prime of life to the lord's embrace most kind tidings of his father's death when the lad received to the ground his head inclined as he wept and grieved returned to gujranwala in grief was bowed his head nervous not a wit was he his valor trumped his dread days were spent in mourning the great mahasingh was dead the burden of his fiefdom now rested on his head buffeted by mighty winds steady the lad did remain steadfastly he had resolved to valor and glory attain all around were mighty foes wished him they all ill turn to the shukar chakiyas baleful eyes they will
the desperate Emperor Shah Alam, reeling from Ghulam Qadr's assault and demoralized by the reverses that his only champion Madhaji Sindhya continued to suffer, reached out to his son Jawan Bakht, who had been living under British protection at Varanasi and summoned him to Delhi. The prince arrived in December 1787, but instead of offering any support to his father, immediately started plotting to incarcerate him and seize the throne. The wily Shah Alam learned of his son's treacherous intentions and after two weeks sent him away with the title of the governor of Agra, which was part of the Mughal crown lands but was in the hands of Ismail Beg Hamadani. The prince arrived in Agra and finding the rebellious commander completely unwilling to accept his overlordship, decided to seek out Ghulam Qadr, who was busy asserting his control on the crown lands of the Ganga Yamuna Dwab and seizing whatever territories of the Marathas that he could. True to his nature, Ghulam Qadr tried to kidnap the prince, who managed to escape to the safety of British territory in February 1788. Various nobles and chiefs tried to take advantage of the chaos and seized as many territories from the Marathas as they could. Ghulam Qadr took several towns in the upper Dwab, and further south, Himmat Bahadur, the Gosai chief, who had been a servant of the emperor, carved out a large tract for himself as well. All the chiefs acted independently as the land grab continued, and Ghulam Qadr also managed to capture the important city of Aligarh. In April, when Madhaji attempted to cross the Chambal and venture north again, Ghulam Qadr and Ismail Beg decided to join forces against the Marathas. Madhaji Sindhya dispatched his lieutenant Rana Khan across the Chambal, who was joined by Ranjit Singh, the Jat Raja of Bharatpur. They managed to send provisions to the beleaguered Maratha garrison at Agra, which still held on to the fort even though the city was in Ismail Beg's hands. Other Maratha commanders began to take back territories that Ghulam Qadr had captured in the Dwab, forcing him to leave Agra. Ismail Beg was defeated by the Marathas, led by Benawad Boyne in a battle fought on the banks of the Yamuna in June, losing more than 2,000 men. Umraugiri, the brother of Himmat Bahadur, was captured and the Gosais returned to the Sindhya ranks. By the end of June, Mataji Sindhya had reasserted Maratha control in the Dwab and surrounding areas and could have marched to rescue the emperor. However, disillusioned by the emperor's dismissing of Ambaji Ingle, when Ghulam Qadr had threatened Delhi, he established his headquarters at Mathura and decided to wait for a formal invitation to return. Mahasin Shukar Chakya was at the height of his power, a fearless leader famed for both his valor and his sagacity, he started attracting more and more independent chiefs to his side. The matrimonial alliance with the Kanhiyas 
had further strengthened his position and increased his prestige, and he commanded a force of more than 10,000 men. In 1788, the Bhangi chief Gujar Singh of Gujarat passed away and was succeeded by his son, Saib Singh Bhangi, Maha Singh's brother-in-law, who was married to his sister Rajkor. Since Gujar Singh had nominally been a feudatory, Maha Singh demanded a succession fee from Saheb Singh Bhangi, which he refused to pay. The dispute, which continued to simmer, was destined to have disastrous consequences. On July 1st, 1788, Ghulam Qadr appeared at Shahadra on the outskirts of Delhi after laying waste to Pratapgarh and Ghaziabad. His new ally, Ismail Beg Hamadani, joined him there and an agreement was reached. The Rohilla chief would retain two-thirds of the spoils of their enterprise and the Mughal commander would get a third. The emperor cowered in the Red Fort in terror, despite the presence of a Maratha brigade under the command of the Gosai Himmat Bahadur. Begum Samru and her well-trained Sepoy battalions had left Delhi after the previous threat from Ghulam Qadr had receded. On his leaving on his campaign in the Dwab, and she was at her newly awarded estate at Tappal, savoring her time with George Thomas, who was still her lover. When the emperor got word of the Maratha victory at Agra, he had sent robes of honor to Mataji with an invitation to Delhi, and his initial reaction was to oppose Ghulam Qadr to the best of his ability. But Himmat Bahadur quietly slipped out of the fort with his ash-smeared warrior monks and retreated to Faridabad, and the forces of Ghulam Qadr and Ismail Beg entered the city unopposed. The fort, which was still garrisoned by the famous Lal Paltan or Red Guards that had been raised by the late Najaf Khan, could have held out until Maratha reinforcements arrived. However, the treacherous eunuch Manzur Ali Khan prevailed upon the emperor to grant an audience to Ghulam Qadr, that was the beginning of an orgy of violence that lasted for a full nine weeks. In addition to being weak and defenseless, the emperor had enemies within the royal household. His father, the late Emperor Alamgir II, had been placed on the throne after the blinding and killing of the former Emperor Ahmad Shah, the son of Muhammad Shah Rangile. After the ascension of Alamgir II, that branch of the family had been subjected to harsh indignities and had been forced to live in utter penury. They had been kept in the cells in the Salatin quarters where the descendants of former emperors were forced to live. The captive princes were barely given enough to eat and several foreign visitors had reported on the piteous clamor of the Salatin quarters that even reached the audience halls when they visited the emperor. 
Malika Zamani, the Dowager Queen and widow of Muhammad Shah, was among the most bitter of the royals, having been very fond of her stepson Ahmed Shah, who had been murdered to make way for Shah Alam's father. Saiba Mehel, another widow of Muhammad Shah's, whose daughter was married to the Afghan king Tamur Shah, was also bitterly opposed to Shah Alam and his line. The two former queens summoned Ghulam Qadir and offered him the sum of a million rupees to depose Shah Alam and in his place install Bidarbakht, a son of Ahmad Shah's who was also in detention at the Salatin quarters. Ghulam Qadir himself harbored great personal enmity towards the emperor. After his father's defeat at the hands of the Marathas and the emperors, he had been brought to Delhi and had been raised in the royal household. It was rumored that as a handsome young lad he had been castrated for the interest he had shown in the women of the royal harem. The conferring of the regency of the empire and the post of Mir Bakshi, or paymaster, which he considered his birthright, upon the Hindu upstart Madhaji Sindhya also rankled. Ghulam Qadir and Ismail Beg entered the emperor's presence after the Lal Paltan was commanded to stand down and swore an oath of fidelity on the Quran. Then they asked the emperor for funds to launch a jihad against the Marathas, to which he agreed, saying that he would give them whatever he could muster. When they demanded that a Mughal prince be deputed to join the jihad, the emperor, knowing that they were really asking for a hostage, commanded his son, Suleiman Shukur, to go with them. 4,000 troops from Ghulam Qadir's force were posted in and around the fort, and they began to systematically seize the goods, furniture, and clothes of the royals. When Prince Akbar tried to convince the remaining loyalists to resist, saying that it was better to die than to be subjected to these indignities, the emperor took his sword away and dramatically held it to his own throat, urging his household to submit to fate. The emperor collected two million rupees and made them over to Ghulam Qadir, imploring him to use the money only for the jihad, and told him that he had gone into seclusion as per his demands. Ghulam Qadir declared that one who was so willing to go into seclusion had lost the right to rule and summoned Bidarbakht. He and his men then dispossessed the emperor and the princes of their swords and ordered that the emperor and his nineteen sons be confined in the Deori Salatin. Drums were beaten and Bidarbakht was proclaimed the next Mughal emperor with the title Nasiruddin Muhammad Jahanshah. Convinced that the emperor was hoarding great wealth, Ghulam Qadir started harassing Shah Alam, making him weep in anguish by having the princes Akbar and Suleiman Shukur whipped in front of him. When Bidarbakht suggested that the royal maidservants might know of the treasure hoard, Ghulam Qadir had boiling hot oil poured on their hands and learned of two ice vaults from which some treasure was recovered. 
as this was happening, Shah Alam and his sons were forced to endure the heat of the midday sun as their pleas for water went unheeded. The emperor's suffering was only to get worse. For on August 10th, Ghulam Qadir had needles driven through his eyes. The next day he summoned the court painter and asked him to paint him kneeling over the emperor, carving out his eyeball with a dagger. The emperor, who was in agony, was left unattended for three days and denied food and water. Several of his servants, who tried to attend to him, were killed. Malika Izamani's triumph at the enthroning of her grandson was short-lived. When she demanded that she be installed in the royal chambers, as Ghulam Qadir had extracted tremendous wealth from the royal household, he responded that everything he had taken was merely his legacy and compensation for what his family had been deprived of. He demanded the one million that the dowager queen had promised from her personal wealth. When she was unable to pay, her mansion was ransacked, and she was brought with Saiba Mehal to the fort, unveiled and exposed to the public eye, in order to humiliate her. Finally, it was the turn of the architect of Shah Alam's doom, Manzur Ali Khan. Furious at his inability to produce more wealth that Ghulam Qadir was sure lay hidden in the palace, he was brutally beaten and a large fine was levied on him. When he was unable to pay, his house was ransacked and all his personal wealth was seized. Ghulam Qadir, however, was not yet done and his depredations continued. One night, as part of his drunken revelry at the palace, he summoned the Prince Akbar and his 18 brothers and forced them to dance in order to humiliate them and threatened their sisters with rape, declaring that only then would they be able to produce manlier offspring. He then placed his head on the knee of Prince Akbar and went to sleep for an hour with his sword on his person. When he woke up, he slapped the prince and berated him for his timidity, saying that a real man would have seized his sword and killed him as he slept. Several Mughal princesses were molested and dishonored, and when one of Ghulam Qadir's attendants suggested that it was unacceptable to treat the women of the royal household in such a disgraceful manner, he replied that he had done nothing to them that had not been done to the women of his father's household when the Marathas and the Mughals had overrun it. Several of the hapless princesses were rescued by Ghulam Qadir's commander Maniyar Singh, who escorted them back to their families. Unaware of the fate of his brother-in-law, the Emperor Shah Alam, Tamur Shah once again turned his attention to the Punjab. In September, he sent his general, Madad Khan Shah Aksai, with 15,000 cavalry, 50,000 infantry, 
and 1,700 camels to start a campaign to assert Afghan authority over the Sikhs. Madad Khan's path was blocked at Atak by the forces of Saib Singh Pangi and Maha Singh Shukarchakya. Unable to cross the Indus, Madad Khan started marching north on the west bank, the Sikh detachments mirroring his movements on the east bank. Unwilling to engage the Sikhs, Madad Khan returned to Kabul. Tamur Shah had been getting frantic letters from several Rajput kings, including Raja Bijay Singh of Jodhpur, imploring him to come to their aid to defeat Madhaji Sindhya. He also got news of the terrible atrocities of Ghulam Qadr in Delhi and felt honor-bound to march to relieve Shah Alam. There were other reasons for him to turn his eye eastwards as well. The Nawab of Bahawalpur, his vassal, had not been paying tribute for several years and needed to be brought to book. Tamur Shah travelled to Peshawar and started assembling a force of 120,000 men, sending word to Nawab Muzaffar Khan of Multan to make arrangements for provisioning his army when he marched. Ismail Beg was completely aghast at Ghulam Qadir's inhumane treatment of the royal household, and a rift opened between the two allies when Ghulam Qadir refused to honour their agreement and surrender a third of the spoils of Delhi to him. After bitter words were exchanged, Ghulam Qadir sent Ismail Beg the paltry sum of 40,000 rupees from the treasure looted from Manzur Ali Khan's home. Unable to pay his soldiers, Ismail Beg started to face large-scale desertions. At the end of September, as the Maratha general, Rana Khan started to march upon Delhi, Ismail Beg defected to his side, abandoning Ghulam Qadir. Himmat Bahadur and another detachment of Maratha horse had already been encamped at Faridabad a few miles from the capital. Begum Samru with George Thomas was also making her way to Delhi after learning of what had transpired. The combined forces took control of Delhi by October 2nd and the Ruhila soldiers took shelter behind the walls of the fort. While maintaining a perfunctory defense, Ghulam Qadir started sending out his looted treasure north to his headquarters at Ghosgarh. His former allies, the Sikh chiefs, were lying in wait and with the age of Gujar tribesmen and Maratha soldiers, were only too happy to attack his men and seize his treasure. Ghulam Qadir, worried about the safety of his territories, was compelled to go to the east bank of the Yamuna to defend them, occasionally returning to the fort to continue the torture and humiliation of the Mughal princes. On October 10, a powder magazine inside the fort blew up, prompting Ghulam Qadir, who saw it as an omen of doom, to flee across the Yamuna with his men. The Marathas entered the fort the next day, and their first order of business was to provide food and medical assistance to the half-dead and blind emperor. Food was sent to all the princes and their families, and barbers were summoned to take care of their grooming after more than two months of neglect and worse. Rana Khan paid his respects to the emperor 
and had the kutbah or the Friday prayer at the Jama Masjid read in his name again. Delhi was back in Maratha hands. Temur Shah marched out of Peshawar in early November, crossed the Indus and made for Multan. He was joined by Imadul Mulk, the former vizier of the Mughal Empire, and Raja Bijay Singh of Jodhpur. By January, he had subdued Bahawalpur and started making plans to march onwards to Delhi. Raja Bijay Singh offered Temur Shah the sum of 2 million rupees for freeing him from the Maratha yoke, but the Afghan king demanded twice the amount. And there was another pressing issue, for passage through the Punjab was impossible because Maha Singh Shukar Chakya and the other Sikh chiefs were already starting to make their presence felt with the clear intention of taking on the Afghans. The only path lay through the desert which Tamur Shah felt would take a heavy toll on his army. Bijay Singh promised to send 3,000 camel loads of water bags for the desert crossing. As panic started to spread in Delhi again, Madhaji Sindhya swung into action, sending an envoy to meet Tamur Shah, apprising him of the recent events in the capital. He also sent a stern message to Bijay Singh, promising him that any respite that Temur Shah provided would be temporary and that as soon as he returned to Kabul, he would face the wrath of the Marathas. Temur Shah turned upon Bijay Singh, castigating him for not going to his sovereign's aid in his time of need. Madhaji Sindhya was the only one who cared about the prestige of the Mughals to stand up to Ghulam Qadir, he said. He has restored the fortunes and glory of the noble Timurid line, and for this he has to be respected. I will not take up arms against him. After collecting tribute in Sindh, Temur Shah returned to Kabul under the watchful eyes of the Sikhs, who had engaged the Afghans close to Gujaranwala. Another fierce engagement had occurred near Sialkot, where Sikh forces under the command of Dayal Singh and Natha Singh defeated an Afghan detachment led by General Ataullah Khan and put him to death. Tamur Shah's goal of recapturing the Punjab remained unfulfilled once again. Back in Delhi... The focus now was on the pursuit and capture of Ghulam Qadir, who had to be brought to book. The first force that was sent in pursuit was routed by Ghulam Qadir's musketeers, trained by French mercenaries. In November, Rana Khan, accompanied by the commander Apa Khande Rao, marched out of Delhi with 20,000 soldiers, accompanied by Begum Samru's battalions, as well as 8,000 men from the army of the Jat king Ranjit Singh. An additional contingent of Maratha reinforcements, which Madhaji had requested from the Maratha court in Pune more than a year earlier, finally arrived in Delhi. Madhaji Sindhya asked the young general Ali Bahadur, who headed the contingent, to join the pursuit, conferring overall command upon him. Begum Samru elected to stay in Delhi to mend fences with the emperor, fearful about her future. 
She had been his favourite, but she had not brought her well-trained brigades to Delhi quickly enough to save him from the unimaginable pain that he had suffered. She wondered if she was going to be blamed for her inability to protect him. Shah Alam, old, feeble, and blind, was already talking about abdicating in favor of his son Akbar, the prospect of which terrified Begum Samru, for who was to say that the new emperor would confirm her estates or not? Help arrived somewhat unexpectedly in the person of Madhaji Sindhya, whose own position as the regent of the Mughal Empire depended on the emperor's favor. Madhaji arranged a grand darbar in Delhi, in which the emperor was formally reinstated and an annual allowance of 900,000 rupees was fixed for his maintenance, after which Madhaji returned to Mathura. The emperor did not say one word in rebuke to Begum Samru and confirmed her estates, and in fact gave her a lofty new title. She would be known as Umdat al-Arkeen, or the Pillar of the State. The desperate Ghulam Qadr crisscrossed the country without a plan, trying to evade the pursuing Marathas. He suffered a great setback when the great fort of Aligarh was taken by the Marathas in December and took shelter behind the walls of the fort at Merit. The Marathas besieged the fort and the situation inside became dire, prompting Ghulam Qadr to negotiate. When the Maratha spurned his offer to release the Mughal princes that he had carried off as hostages in return for safe passage, he threatened to kill them. Prompting his lieutenant Maniyar Khan to draw his sword in protest to save the princes' lives. Leaving Maniyar Khan in command of the fort, Ghulam Qadr slipped out with 500 horsemen and tried to get to his citadel at Gauskar. He was pursued by a Maratha detachment that managed to slay half of his escort. The remaining Rohillas were scattered, and losing his horse, Ghulam Qadr limped around on foot, seeking shelter. At dawn, he arrived at the village of Bamnali, close to the town of Shamli. There he was captured by the Marathas on December 19th. Merit was taken and the captive princes were released. Both Bidarbakht and Manzur Ali Khan were sent to Delhi and put to death at the emperor's command. Ghulam Qadr was sent with other important prisoners to Madhaji Sindhya's custody at Mathura. In an attempt to recover the looted treasure of Delhi, Madhaji treated his former protege with kindness, offering him food and clothing to induce him to talk. The emperor, in the meantime, was losing patience. He wrote a letter to Madhaji, threatening to abdicate and go to Mecca if Ghulam Qadr's eyes were not gouged out and sent to him immediately. On March 4, 1789, the physician Hakim Amal was sent to Ghulam Qadr's cell to extract his eyeballs, 
cut off his nose and ears, and send them to the emperor in a small chest. Ghulam Qadir's hands and feet were amputated, and he was put to death. His corpse was sent to Delhi and hung from a tree. As the blood dripped from his body hanging upside down, a black dog with white rings around its eyes eagerly lapped it up. Bystanders threw rocks at the dog to chase it away, but it kept coming back. Two days later, both the dog and the corpse were gone. Thus ended the saga of Ghulam Qadir, undoubtedly one of the most macabre chapters in the history of the Mughals. Ghulam Qadir's mother, accompanied by her younger son, Ghulam Muinuddin Khan, also known as Bambu Khan, fearing Maratha retribution, sought shelter with the Sikhs. Her late husband, Zabitha Khan, had long-standing ties with the Sikhs and had even briefly converted to the Sikh faith, taking the name Dharam Singh when he had been at odds with the emperor and the Marathas. She was received graciously by Sardar Jassa Singh Ramgadiya, who, over the protests of several other Sikh chiefs, granted Bambu Khan the revenue of five villages amounting to rupees 7,000 a year in the vicinity of Pagwara. Bambu Khan served Jassa Singh faithfully until his death in 1803. Madhaji Sindhya, having dealt with Abdul Qadir, turned his attention to the sea Satluj states, which had always been a source of trouble to Delhi and the crown lands to its north that he was responsible for administering. Exhausted and in ill health, he was also actively thinking about who would succeed him in his role as the Maratha regent in the north. Rana Khan, his lieutenant, was completely trustworthy, but he was of low birth, having been a humble water carrier. Ali Bahadur, whose star was in the ascendant, seemed to be a perfect candidate. For in addition to being a brave soldier, he was Muslim, which would help him fit well in the court at Delhi. He decided to send Rana Khan and Ali Bahadur to exact tribute from the Sikh chiefs of the Malwa. Sardar Bagail Singh of the Karod Singhya Missal, one of the most prominent Sikh chiefs, on learning of the Maratha movement, sent word to the trans-Satlut chiefs, who responded by sending 12,000 men who set up camp at the boundaries of Patiala. When the Maratha generals arrived in Patiala to demand tribute, Sahib Singh's wily minister, Divan Nanumal, offered additional funds if the Marathas would dislodge the trans-Satluj Sikhs, who he saw as a threat to Patiala. The Marathas, in response, attacked Patiala and were opposed by Sardar Tara Singh Gabba, the powerful chief of the Dallewalia Missal. After a fierce skirmish, the Marathas decided to retreat, and then came to an understanding with the Sikh chiefs. 
they conferred an estate upon Sardar Bagail Singh in return for holding his fellow Sikh chiefs in check and also confirmed the estates of Sardar Panga Singh of Thanesar, another chief from the Krorsingya Missal who had stood by the emperor in his time of need. The affairs of the Sea Satluj VI seemed somewhat settled, but events were unfolding in Begum Samru's kingdom Sardhana, which were going to create trouble for them. Ranjit Singh, the only son of Mahasingh Shukarchakya, was growing up as a young warrior. From a young age, he had learned to ride and shoot and devoted no time to learning either Persian or Punjabi. He was taught swordsmanship, wrestling, and other martial arts and spent many hours practicing his marksmanship with a matchlock. By the time he was ten, he had already expended more than 20,000 bullets from the Gujaramala armory on target practice. In 1789, Mahasingh took his young son with him as he laid siege to the fort at Manchar, which was controlled by the Chattas. The siege dragged on and Mahasingh had to retire, conferring command of the Shukarchakya forces upon his young son. Ranjit Singh got separated from the main body of his troops and was set upon by Hashmat Khan Chatha, the uncle of Ghulam Muhammad, the ruler of Manchar. Hashmat Khan was eager to extract revenge from Mahasingh, who had seized Rasul Nagar and other Chatha territories by killing his young son. Ranjit Singh managed to avoid Hashmat Khan's blow and the assailant's sword sliced through his bridle. The lad fell upon his attacker and severed his head with a single blow of his sword. Ghulam Muhammad surrendered in exchange for a promise of safe passage, but he was put to death by the Sikhs. His son John Muhammad managed to flee to Kabul and took shelter with the Afghans. It was the young Ranjit Singh's first victory in battle. When Begum Samru got back to Sardhana, she got word that the commander of the Sardhana Brigade had been recruited away by Benoit de Boyne and a thorny issue presented itself. George Thomas was unequivocally the most competent of the battalion commanders and deserved to be promoted, but his European brother officers could not stand him and were intensely jealous of his relationship with the Begum. She decided to send George Thomas to govern her estates at Tappal, far to the south of Sardhana, and instead appointed one of her British commanders, Major Evans, the head of the Sardhana Brigade. Just as Thomas was leaving for Tuppel, without his wife Maria and their two children, a French gunner named Pierre-Antoine Levasseau 
entered the Begum's service. The capture and killing of Ghulam Qadir and the restoration of Shah Alam to the Mughal throne should have been a glorious victory for Madhaji Sindhya, but he was a man beset by several difficulties. The reverses of the Rajput campaign and the loss of his territories had greatly weakened his financial position, as the loss of revenue was accompanied by a huge increase in military expenses as he ramped up his forces to take Agra and Delhi back. In March 1789, he fell severely ill, suffering from boils that threatened to take his life. He was fully convinced that his illness was because of witchcraft and sorcery, which he blamed on the ascetic Hindu warrior Himmat Bahadur Gosain, who had rebelled against him in the past. He ordered the arrest of Himmat Bahadur, who took refuge with Ali Bahadur, creating great ill will between Madhaji and his erstwhile protege. There were other political intrigues that Madhaji had to contend with. Historically, the two great Maratha houses, the Sindhyas and the Holkars, had been given joint oversight over the Peshwa's northern territories, with which came the right to half the tribute that was collected on behalf of the Maratha court. In reality, however, the star of the Holkars had been on the decline even as that of the Sindhyas had been rising, and they had made no significant contributions to policing and administering the northern territories. In mid-1789, Tukoji Holkar arrived at Mathura and demanded his half, a claim which Madhaji dismissed as absurd. Ali Bahadur, whom Madhaji saw as his successor in the north, was close to Tukoji Holkar, which, coupled with the Himmatbadar fiasco, alienated him further from Madhaji. The Rajput Rajas tried to exploit the rift between Sindhya and Holkar to assert their independence and refused to pay tribute either to the emperor or his agent Madhaji. They hired Ismail Beg Hamadani, who had been pardoned by Madhaji and had been given Najaf Kuli Khan's estates to the west of Delhi to serve as a buffer between them and the Marathas. It was clear to Madhaji that he would have to go to war with the Rajput Rajas of Jaipur and Jodhpur again. Mahasinghe had been feuding with his brother-in-law Sahib Singh Pangi of Gujarat since the death of his father Gujar Singh Pangi. When a dispute had broken out between Sahib Singh and his brother Fateh Singh, Mahasinghe had supported the latter, making his brother-in-law furious. His sister Rajkor tried to bring about a reconciliation, but failed, and the bitterness continued for two years. The greatest irritant to Sahib Singh Bhangi was Mahasinghe's demand for a fee of succession, which the Bhangi chief protested was not a valid claim. The ill will erupted into open warfare, and Mahasinghe laid siege to Sahib Singh's fort at Sodara with his young son at his side. The siege dragged on for three months, and towards the end, Mahasinghe was deserted by his ally, Jodh Singh Bangi of Wazirabad, who decided to retire than to continue to battle 
his fellow Bhangi chief. Saib Singh Bhangi, who considered himself to be the injured party, decided to seek divine intervention. With his turban around his neck as a mark of humility, he went barefoot to pay his respects to the Sufi divine, Darvesh Mastan Shah, in response to his entreaty that Darvesh prayed to Allah to punish the guilty and spare the innocent. Very soon after that, Mahasingh fell ill during battle, fainting while he was on his elephant, prompting his mahouth to bring him back to the Shukarchakia camp. Mahasingh had a premonition that his illness was going to prove fatal, and before he was taken back to Gujaramwala, he anointed his ten-year-old son, the new chief of the Shukarchakia missile, leaving him in charge of his army. The Bhangis thought they had an opportunity when they got news of Mahasingh's illness and his retreat to Gujaramwala. A ten-year-old boy, untested in battle, was in command of the Shukarchakia forces. Surely it was a heaven-sent opportunity for the Bhangis to pay the Shukarchakias back for years of humiliation. Saib Singh Bhangi sent word for reinforcements and the mighty Karam Singh Dolu of Chinioth Charat Singh Kalyanwala and other Pangi Sardars from Lahore rode to his relief. The precocious young commander of the Shukarchakia forces set a trap and defeated his foes in a fierce battle that was fought at Kot Maharaj. Several Pangi commanders, including Charat Singh Kalyanwala, were killed and the young Ranjit Singh seized their batteries and sent them to Gujaramwala. Maha Singh was overjoyed to hear of his son's great victory, and breathed his last, a happy man. The young chief of the Shukarchakia missile had inherited his father's administration, which he largely kept intact. The late Mahasingh's minister, Divan Lakhpatrai, continued to manage the missile's revenue and political affairs. Mr. Basti Ram, who was in charge of the Shukarchakia Toshakhana or Treasury continued in his role. He was assisted by his nephew Gurmuk Singh, who Mahasingh had taken into his service the year Ranjit Singh was born. He had been a companion to the young chief since his infancy. Since Ranjit Singh was all of ten years old, his mother, Rajkor, served as his regent, with overall authority being exercised by Sardar Dal Singh, the chief of Akalgarh who had been married to the late Mahasingh's aunt. When Mahasingh was on his deathbed, he charged Divan Lakhpatrai and Dal Singh both with guiding and protecting his son. However, soon after his passing, the two were at each other's throats. The young Ranjit Singh was content to let his mother and his advisor handle the affairs of the missile while he spent his time riding, shooting, and hunting in the vicinity of Gujaramwala. Nana Fadnis, the chief power broker at the Maratha court in Pune, had brokered a temporary peace between Himmat Bahadur and Mataji Sindhya, the monk's future good behavior guaranteed by Ali Bahadur. When Mataji finally decided to march against the Rajputs, he found Ali Bahadur to be singularly unenthusiastic 
and was surprised when he sent only a small detachment to join his force. He learned that Ali Bahadur had been intriguing with Pratap Singh of Jaipur, Bijay Singh of Jodhpur, and Ismail Beg Hamadani. Tukoji Holkar also seemed bent on thwarting his plans, but Madhaji decided to continue the Rajputana campaign undaunted. When he asked Nana Fadnis to recall Tukoji and Ali Bahadur, he refused, which only served to weaken the Marathas in the north further. Madhaji's army under Gopal Bhau, including Du Bois' brigade, set out for Jaipur. They first marched to Rivari, where they induced Najaf Kuli Khan, whose territories had been usurped by Ismail Beg, to join them with 2,000 of his men. The decisive battle with the Rajputs was fought at Patan on June 10, 1790. The Rajputs were completely defeated and a terrible slaughter ensued, in no small part because of the brilliance of Du Bois and his well-disciplined sepoys. Raja Pratap Singh of Jaipur submitted to Madhaji and agreed to pay an annual tribute of one and a half million rupees, which he did faithfully until his death. The Marathas then went on to capture Ajmer, bypassing the city of Jaipur. Ismail Beg, who had sought shelter at Jaipur after his defeat at Patan, joined hands with Bijay Singh of Jodhpur. The next engagement was against the Rathors of Jodhpur at Murta on September 10, in which the Marathas prevailed again. Mataji Sindhya had triumphed, but Tokoji Holkar was waiting in the wings for the next opportunity to undermine his rival, continuing his intrigues with Mataji's enemies. Meanwhile, Tamur Shah had not quite given up his dreams of recapturing the Punjab. Also aware of the weakness of Shah Alam and his dynasty, he nurtured an ambition to place his oldest son Humayun on the throne of Delhi. He had already sent ambassadors to Shah Alam's court in 1774 and then again in 1778. One of his primary objectives had been to enlist the emperor's support in attacking the Sikhs from the rear while he marched upon the Punjab. The emperor, who had a healthy respect for the fighting abilities of the Sikhs, had been lukewarm to the idea. In December 1790, another Afghan ambassador arrived in Delhi. Sadullah Khan had been sent primarily to inquire into the well-being of the emperor after his extreme suffering at the hands of Ghulam Qadr. After meeting the emperor, Sadullah Khan went on to pay his respects to Madhaji and convey Taimur Shah's appreciation of the rescue of Shah Alam. Madhaji sent back expensive gifts for Taimur Shah and honored his ambassador. Madhaji reached an understanding with Taimur Shah, ceding the territory between Lahore and Atak to him in exchange for his recognizing the Satluj as the northern boundary of the Marathas. The trans-Satluj region up to Lahore would be left alone by both of them for the Sikhs. As the Afghans and Marathas were dreaming of establishing long-lasting power in the Punjab, a young chief who was destined to challenge them both 
was coming of age. The British had kept a wary eye on the six for years because of their frequent raids in the Yamuna Ganga Dwab, which had often brought them all the way to the borders of Avad, which was an ally under their protection. Towards the end of the year, a freak incident brought the Sikhs to their notice like never before. Sardar Bhanga Singh of Thanesar encroached upon Patiala territories, prompting Divan Nanumal to seek help from Rane Khan, who made his way north to engage Bhanga Singh. His men skirmished with the Marathas, often getting the better of them and making off with several of their horses and elephants. The success against Rane Khan emboldened the Sikh chief, and he made his way south into the Dwab, accompanied by a thousand horsemen. The threat to Patiala from Pangasing was over, and Rane Khan made preparations to leave, but when he learned that Nanumal did not have the funds that had been promised to him, the Marathas began to plunder Patiala. Nanumal's attempts to raise money proved futile, and Rani Rajinderkor once again rode to the rescue. She visited Rane Khan's camp and persuaded him to accept a payment of 60,000 rupees, which put an end to the pillaging. She also offered to travel to Mathura to meet Madhaji Sindhya in order to negotiate the final amount of the tribute. Nanumal's son, Devi Datta, was taken hostage by the Marathas to ensure that the tribute would be paid. Bhanga Singh and his warriors raided all the way to Anupshahar on the banks of the Ganga, where lay a British cantonment commanded by Colonel Robert Stewart that guarded a bridge of boats on the path from Avad to Delhi. While riding without an escort one day, Stuart was set upon by a band of brigands who tried to kidnap him, prompting Bhanga Singh to rescue him. Instead of releasing the British officer, Bhanga Singh took him hostage and brought him back to Thanesar. Back in Patiala, in the absence of Rani Rajinderkor, Raja Sahib Singh decided to assert his independence. He dismissed Divan Nanumal and appointed his sister Rani Sahib Kamar, who was married to Jamal Singh Kanhiya, as his new prime minister. When Rani Rajinderkor returned from Mathura, Sahib Singh refused to meet with her and treated her with disrespect despite her long service to Patiala. She fell ill and died a broken woman. The British, eager to secure the release of Colonel Stewart, tried the diplomatic route first. When the Nawab of Avad and the British residents sent friendly letters to Bhanga Singh, he responded in a similar tone, coolly choosing not to even mention the captive Stuart. Other efforts to influence the chief through neighboring Sikh Sardars also failed. When all British attempts to get Stuart released had failed, the Nawab of Avad, knowing that Begum Samru had good connections with the Sikhs, asked her to intervene. Bhanga Singh had demanded a ransom of a hundred thousand rupees for the British officer. Begum Samru knew Bhanga Singh well, 
for her brigade had crossed swords with him several times. They had also been allies briefly when Panga Singh had stood by the Emperor Shah Alam during Ghulam Qadir's first attack on Delhi. She went to Thanesar and managed to negotiate the ransom down to 60,000 rupees, hosting Stuart at Sardhana and then presenting him to the emperor before he was escorted back to Anupshahar. The incident convinced the British Governor-General Lord Cornwallis that the Sikhs needed to be treated with caution and not be provoked. Divan Nanumal passed away, and with his death and Rani Rajendra Kaur's, the Kingdom of Patiala lost the leaders who had managed its affairs after the passing of Raja Amar Singh. Sahib Singh was a weak man who loved parties, dances, hunting, and elephant fights, and was ill-suited to rule the kingdom of Sardar Ala Singh. The only saving grace was his sister at his side as Divan, for she was every bit as bold and capable as the late Rani Rajinder Kaur. In the beginning of 1792, Madhaji Sindhya, having shattered Rajput power and successfully established Maratha supremacy all the way to the Sutlej, left for Pune. In the name of the Emperor Shah Alam, the Marathas held six regions that Mataji governed through his lieutenants. Delhi was under the command of Shah Nizamuddin, Mataji's longtime agent in the capital. Immediately to the north and west of Delhi was the region known as Haryana, which stretched west to the boundaries of Jaipur and the other Rajput states. It was governed by Appa Khande Rao. The area around Panipat was the most unstable as it was adjacent to the hostile Sisatluj Sikh chiefs, who had nominally submitted to the Marathas, but were always looking for opportunities to rebel and raid the crown lands. The upper Yamuna Ganga Dwab, which was the Merit Saharanpur region, was also unstable, as Tokoji Holkar's men tried to impede Madhaji's attempts to collect revenue. The middle Dwab around Aligarh was under the command of the capable Duboin. Overall command rested with the Maratha general Gopal Bhau, one of Sindhya's most trusted lieutenants. When Begum Samru was dealing with Bhanga Singh during the Colonel Stewart affair, George Thomas was far away in Tappal administering her estates, savouring his independence as the virtual governor of the territory. The French officers in Sardhana started a whispering campaign against George Thomas, suggesting that he was enriching himself at the Begum's expense. Most effective were the words of the gunner Levasso, who had become her new lover. Whenever he was summoned back to Sardhana, George Thomas took on an air of indifference, acting unconcerned about being replaced as the Begum's paramour which angered her greatly. The final rupture occurred when the Begum insulted and mistreated George Thomas's wife, Maria, who had continued to live in Sardhana with her children. He left for Tappal with his family and immediately declared himself as the independent ruler of that province. 
the jubilant French officers led the Sardana Brigade to Tuppel and brought George Thomas back in chains. His life was spared, but he was dismissed, leaving with nothing left to his name. The Begum, in a fit of pique, married Pierre Levasso. George Thomas entered the employ of Appa Khande Rao, a move that proved to be immensely profitable to him in the future. end of 1792, Tamur Shah was at his winter capital, Peshawar, toying with the idea of yet another invasion of the Punjab. His kingdom was largely at peace, and of his 24 sons, four were well-established provincial governors, Humayu at Kandahar, Mahmud at Herat, Zaman at Kabul, and Abbas at Peshawar. After summoning Fateh Khan Yusufzai, the rebellious governor of Muzaffarabad, and having him put to death, the Afghan king fell ill. He had been extremely fastidious about his food and had become a bit of a hypochondriac. His physicians, unable to cure him of acute abdominal pain and severe vomiting that he was suffering from, blamed the inclement weather of Peshawar and suggested that he travel back to Kabul. As Tamur Shah was nearing his end, one of the greatest Sikh chiefs of the Punjab also passed away. Sadar Jaisingh Kanahiya died in 1793 at the age of 81. His oldest and most capable son, Gurbak Singh, was long gone, and his younger sons, Nidhan Singh of Hajipur and Bhag Singh of Sohiya, were not capable leaders. His territories were divided into two parts, one of which went to his surviving sons, the other half went to Sadakor, who now became the acknowledged leader of the famed Kanahiya missile. Still thirsting for revenge against the Ramgarhiya, she reached out to the young Ranjit Singh and Sardar Pag Singh Aluwalia for help. However, Sadakor's efforts were frustrated, and the Kanahiya estates in Batala remained in Jasa Singh Ramgarhiya's hands. Prince Zaman, on hearing of his father's illness, started advancing towards Peshawar just as his father left for Kabul. They met at Charbagh, roughly midway between the two cities. The prince kissed his father's hand, who blessed him by kissing his forehead. The king gave his son two of his own beautifully outfitted horses to replace the ones that he had lost during the hard ride from Kabul, and they set out for the capital together. As the royal column camped for the night on the road to Kabul, the king had a dream in which someone removed the crown on his head and placed it on the head of one of his sons. The bird of my soul will soon fly from the cage that is my body, he told his tearful son. On May 18, 1793, Tamur Shah, son of the great Amitya Durrani, who never quite measured up to his illustrious father's legacy, passed away. 
The Afghan emirs or nobles at court, most notable among whom was Sardar Pende Khan of the Baraksai tribe, swung into action. They concealed the death of the king until all the important tribal leaders and generals had been summoned and then made the announcement. The jockeying for power among the princes started immediately. Abbas Mirza, known for his Herculean strength, was the most aggressive of the princes and the popular favorite, and he managed to rally the support of several of his brothers. Humayun, the oldest, supported by his brother Mahmud, was also a strong contender as the brothers were powerful and controlled the important provinces of Kandahar and Herat. Zaman Mirza had the support of the royal harem and most importantly, that of Sardar Pandey Khan. On May 20th, 1793, Shah Zaman was proclaimed the new king of Afghanistan. In mid-1793, Mataji Sindhya had already been in Pune for a year. He had returned after an absence of 12 years and found the Maratha court to be an unfamiliar place, presided over by a new Peshwa, the young Madhavarao II, who he had only seen once as a child of five. A lot of the Maratha courtiers saw Mataji as a threat, whispering about his great wealth his powerful European brigade under Du Bois, and his ambition, which had virtually made him an independent king. The young Peshwa had welcomed Mataji, and he in turn had placed his head on his feet and formally presented him with the titles and robes of honor that Shah Alam had bequeathed upon him. Mataji and Nana Fadnis, the most important minister at court, had attempted to reconcile, but Madhaji's deepening relationship with the young Peshwa had aroused the minister's jealousy. The young Peshwa, very aware of the tension between his two most important nobles, tried to bring about a rapprochement. The continuing discord between Madhaji and Tukoji Holkar had continued to be a great concern, and the bad blood between Ali Bahadur and Madhaji which had been exacerbated by the Himmat Bahadur affair, had continued to be a festering sore. Tukoji, with his belligerent sons, Malhar Rao and Yashwant Rao, intensely jealous of Madhaji's success and his ascendancy, had been plotting his downfall. They had even tried to imitate him by hiring Dedranik, a French chevalier, to raise four battalions in the manner of Benoit de Boyne. After some skirmishes between the Holkers and Gopal Rao Bhau, Madhaji's supreme commander in the north, Tukoji's son finally decided that it was time for the Holkers to crush Sindhya, and with the blessings of Ahilya by the Holker queen, Malhar Rao prepared for battle. Madhaji in Pune had made every effort to preempt the civil war through diplomacy, but after all of his attempts had been frustrated by the combination of Holkar arrogance and Maratha court politics, gave Gopal Rao Bhau the go-ahead to engage. 
Gopal Rao and Du Bois put together a mobile force and engaged the Holkers at Lakheri on June 1, 1793, supported by Begum Samru Sardhana Brigade. The Holkar army consisted of 20,000 horse, 2,000 infantry, and 38 guns. The Sindhya force had 20,000 cavalry, 6,000 infantry, and 80 light guns. The Holkar forces were shattered, and all the European officers, with the exception of Dudrenik, were killed. Malhar Rao Holkar was captured and his camp was plundered. An incensed Tokoji Holkar, on his way back to Indore, plundered Mataji's capital, Ujjain. <laughs> Zaman immediately went about the task of consolidating power, dismissing several of his father's loyalists and replacing them with trusted followers. Several of his brothers, who were reluctant to accept him as the new king, were confined to a palace and literally starved into submission. Once they accepted him as king, they were held at the fort of Balahisar under close supervision. The most significant threat to his new rule were his older brothers Humayun and Mahmud, who governed Kandahar and Herat. Shah Zaman quickly marched upon Kandahar, his army under the command of his younger brother Shuja. When Humayun unwisely left the fortifications of Kandahar to engage Shuja in battle, he was completely defeated and forced to flee. Ignoring Mahmud for the time being, Shah Zaman returned to Kabul and intensified his purge, dismissing and jailing several of the chiefs and nobles. A new, untested king on the throne of Kabul presented an opportunity and rebellions started at various places at the periphery of the empire. Sindh asserted its independence and the Uzbeks started raiding across the Oxus. Since Kashmir and Punjab were particularly unsettled, Shah Zaman turned his attention eastwards. Mirza Ahsan Bakhat, a Mughal prince who had been sheltering with the Afghans, had been prompting Shah Zaman to invade India, as had been an ambassador from the court of Tipu Sultan, commanding the governor of Peshawar to build a bridge of boats across the Indus at Atak, Shah Zaman left Kabul with his army in December 1794. Shah Zaman halted at Peshawar and sent Bande Khan across the Indus with a contingent of 5,000 horse. The Afghans skirmished with a band of six, and even though they prevailed, Shah Zaman summoned them back to Peshawar. Ehsan Bakhat suggested that Shah Zaman meet with Ranjit Singh, who was camped at Chang, to negotiate safe passage during his invasion, but he declined and turned south after advancing to the western bank of the Jhelum. After receiving tribute from Fazullah Khan of Bahawalpur and Muzaffar Khan of Multan, Shah Zaman returned to Peshawar. In a stroke of luck, he heard that his brother Humayun had been accosted and arrested after the death of his son Ahmed broke his spirit. 
He ordered that his older brother be blinded, thus ending his rebellion. Muhammad Khan Sadozai, the chief who had apprehended Humayu, was awarded the governorship of Dera Ismail Khan. The young king of Afghanistan was starting to come into his own, but Punjab, which his father had tried to capture throughout his reign, still remained elusive. In Pune, the young Peshwa under Madhaji's guidance was also coming of age, and he tried to end the conflicts that plagued his court, commanding Madhaji and Nana Fadnis to reconcile. Madhaji continued to make efforts to reorganize the affairs of the Maratha court, but was constantly dragged down by court intrigues and was unable to make any headway. He died in early 1794, frustrated by his inability to unite the feuding chiefs of the Peshwa's court. Madhaji Sindhya had no sons of his own and was succeeded by Dalat Rao Sindhya, the grandson of his brother Tukoji Rao Sindhya, who had died at the Battle of Panipat. The succession of Dalat Rao Sindhya was confirmed by the Peshwa and he was also confirmed as the regent of the Mughal Empire by the Emperor Shah Alam on May 10, 1794. Benoit de Boyne, who had been the architect of so many of Mataji's military successes, was ready to retire, but the Peshwa persuaded him to stay on to support Dolatrao. Mataji's death plunged the territories he had administered into turmoil, the Sea Satluj Six were emboldened to start raiding again, and the Rajputs once again started to dream of casting off the Maratha yoke. Bitter struggles that continued between the Maratha chiefs paved the way for the success of George Thomas, whose fortunes had been on a decline after his dismissal from Begum Samru's service. His new master, Appa Khande Rao, who had earlier been dismissed from Madhaji's service, had granted him the district of Jajjar as a Jagir, in return for which he was asked to furnish a force of 1,000 infantry and 100 cavalry. Securing his master's gratitude for saving him when his troops mutinied at Karnal and inspiring devotion among his soldiers, George Thomas started accumulating both wealth and prestige, building a fort at Jajjar that he named Georgegarh. His soldiers renamed it Jahazgarh, and that was how his headquarters would be known. Soon, he had doubled the size of his cavalry and his infantry, and had also acquired 16 guns, some that he cast personally. Kasur an ancient city about 30 miles south of Lahore had been settled by the Hassanzai Afghans from the time of the Mughal Emperor Akbar. The most prominent leaders of the Afghans of Kasur, the brothers Nizamuddin Khan and Qutubuddin Khan, had been defeated in battle by Gulab Singh Bhangi, the grandson of Sardar Ganda Singh, the last great leader of the Bhangi Missal, and had become his vassals. In 1794, the brothers rebelled and managed to oust the Bhangis from Kasur 
thus becoming independent chiefs. Even though Gulab Singh Bhangi, who operated from Amritsar, made several attempts to win back Kasur, the Afghans resisted and managed to hold on to power, even though they were surrounded by hostile Sikh foes on all sides. As Shah Zaman was consolidating power in Kabul, Daulat Rao Sindhya was establishing himself in the Mughal territories, Nizamuddin was strengthening Kasur, and George Thomas was carving out a new power base for himself, the young Ranjit Singh of the Shukarchakia missile was also coming into his own. He presided over a domain that yielded 3 million rupees a year and stretched over 12 districts including Chiniot, Aminabad, Gujranwala, Rasulnagar, and Rotas. The king of Jammu was his vassal and paid him annual tribute. His territories were protected by 18 large forts, most prominent among them Alipur Chatta, Gujranwala, Rotas, Rasulnagar, and Wazirabad. He had a standing army of 1,200 cavalry and 2,000 infantry, and could draw upon an additional 3,000 horsemen from his feudatories. His commander-in-chief was his great-uncle Dal Singh. Gauss Khan was in charge of his infantry. As the British, firmly entrenched in the east, with their influence stretching to the frontiers of Avad, kept a careful eye on the fluid situation in the north in a time of great change, it was becoming apparent that the new powers that were rising were headed towards an inevitable clash. Empire is brought to you by Almast Media, the creators of the Story of the Sikhs podcast and the Gurmat Sangeet podcast. The podcast features original music by Indian classical guitar maestro Ritam Sarkar. Tabla accompaniment is provided by Swarnava Ghosh. The podcast is made possible by the Chardi Kala Foundation, Ishpreet Singh and Manpreet Kaur, and the Sani Family Foundation. It is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh author of The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, The Knight of the Restless Spirits, The Story of the Sikhs, and Koltar's Mime. To introduce myself briefly, I'm a Boston-based actor who was introduced to the Sikh world a few years ago when I toured extensively with Koltar's Mime, an immersive theatrical production that tells the story of the anti-Sikh violence of 1984. I am delighted to be involved in the retelling of this fabulous tale. I'm host Ben Gutman, Thank you for joining us.